Now, if you have your Bible here tonight, I'm going to ask you to turn to a section in your Bible that's probably not visited very much. Uh, It's the Minor Prophets section that's in your Old Testament, and we're going to go into the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. uh, We'll be looking all through this book, but the Lord reminded me of this uh, little prophet uh, a while back as we were going through this whole pandemic and brought me back to this text a couple of years ago. I did preach through a section in the Minor Prophets and we went over the book of Habakkuk, but God brought me back here again because I feel like that the truth contained herein is so applicable to what we're going through right now. So you may have to put a little WD-40 in your Bible as it creaks to that section, but we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. Earlier on... This week, I came across an article that was in the New York Times. It was published on March the 22nd of 2020. The article was entitled, Where is God in a Pandemic? The author of the piece was a Jesuit priest named James Martin. And in the article, Martin wrestles with the thorny problem that so many have tried to reconcile down through the centuries. That is, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering and death, much like what we have witnessed in this recent COVID-19 pandemic? Well, about three-quarters of the way through this article, Mr. Martin gives his answer. Here's what he wrote. In the end, he said the most honest answer to the question of why the COVID-19 virus is killing thousands of people why infectious diseases ravage humanity, and while there is suffering at all, is, drum roll please, we don't know. For me, he said, this is the most honest and accurate answer. An important question for the believer, he said, in times of suffering is this, can you believe in a God that you don't understand? Now, I don't have time to critique the man's answer, even though if I were writing that article, I would have responded very differently because I think that the Word of God does have a tremendous amount of counsel on how we are to act and respond in suffering and why God allows suffering in our lives. But nonetheless, it is in times like these where the question that's running through everyone's mind is, God, what are you doing? And that's where the prophet Habakkuk comes in. This obscure prophet with a funny name cried out to God for answers right before the world caved in among the people of Judah. By the way, that name Habakkuk, it's interesting, it means to wrestle or to embrace. And as you read through this short book, Habakkuk does both because he goes on a spiritual journey. Habakkuk at the beginning wrestles with God over the problem of unchecked evil. And then at the end of the book you find out that he is able to embrace God's promises and live in faith rather than fear. Now, uh, one great Bible scholar, a man named Howard Hendricks, he called Habakkuk the man with a question mark for a brain. And uh, that may be a good description of Habakkuk because as you read through this book, He asked God a lot of questions. Uh, Another commentator referred to Habakkuk as the Downing Thomas of the Old Testament. Now, this little book is just 56 verses, but 
Although it is sectioned off here in our minor prophets, there is nothing minor about Habakkuk's message because he deals with a complex issue that gets right down to the very bedrock of our faith, and that is, what do we do when heaven's answers don't make sense from earth's perspective? Now, in these past days, we have all had our lives and our routines radically changed, and many have wondered now as we live in this new reality, what do we do now? Well, of course, many of us are living by the commands of our government to be social distancing and limit our travel and all of that. But in this message, I want to give you an answer from the book of Habakkuk. And I want to give you an overview, a whirlwind tour of this book. And considering our current situation, I think that Habakkuk offers us four responses of what to do when we don't know what to do. So if you're taking notes out there at home tonight, write this down. Number one, the first thing that we see is God commands us to watch. Watch because God's ways are unfathomable. Now, here's a bit of background. The year is about 605 B.C. The godly king Josiah has just died. And the nation of Judah has been plunged now into a cesspool of sin. And the prophet Habakkuk is living in these times, and he surveys his nation, and he notices that there's every form of iniquity and idolatry and immorality run amok. And it seems as if God is apathetic to the whole situation. It seemed as if, from the prophet's perspective, that God is far away, sitting on his hands, and not willing to do anything. And so Habakkuk begins, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise So the law is paralyzed, injustice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. Now as you notice Habakkuk's plight there, it could have well just have been lifted off from the headlines of today's news report, because as we tune in, we see that there is one miscarriage of justice after another. And like Habakkuk, we are living in a chaotic world. It's full of pandemics and poverty and uh, drug addiction and terrorism and genocide and political intrigue and just plain S-I-N. So when Habakkuk saw the terrible moral decline of his nation and the, the people of Judah, he prayed and he told God, God, why don't you do something about this? And in his mind, maybe Habakkuk thought that God's response to him would be that he was going to raise up another godly king uh, to lead them on the path of righteousness. Or maybe God was uh, going to raise up a prophet who would be like Elijah and do many mighty miracles and show the people once again that God's saving plan was at work. But little did he know that God's answer when it finally did come would knock the wind out of him. For here's what God said, verse 5. Look among the nations and see 
Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They are all come for violence and their faces forward and they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. So we notice here that God's first command to his prophet Habakkuk in verse 5, you probably saw it there, was look, in other words, watch what I'm doing, Habakkuk. And in this case, seeing was believing because God said to the prophet, he said, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you is coming your way. And we notice here that God's solution to the rebellion of His people was oncoming judgment in the form of an invading army. The text calls them the Chaldeans. We know them as the Babylonians. And Habakkuk was stunned that the Babylonians were coming to knock down the walls of Judea because they were the most vicious, wicked civilization on the planet at that time. In fact, the cruelty of these conquerors were infamous throughout the ancient world. And I did some research a while back. Listen to some of the grisly ways that the Babylonians instilled fear and dread in the hearts of the people that they came to conquer. These are some of the things that they did. They flayed the skin off of live victims. They cut off hands and feet of their captors. They burned people alive in large furnaces. We know that from Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were known for poking out the eyes of their victims with hot irons. They impaled victims on stakes and left them to be devoured by the beasts and the birds. They partook in live disembowelment. They would stack skulls in large piles in front of a city to intimidate them into surrendering. So let's bring this in our modern vernacular. If God were giving this prophecy to an American pastor, an American prophet today, here's what he would be saying. I'm raising up ISIS to judge this nation, America, because you did not respect my law. Now I'm sending wrath your way and you're going to live under Sharia law. That would be the equivalent of what God would be saying today in modern terms. So you can see that God's answer to Habakkuk threw him totally for a loop. He could not reconcile in his mind how the Lord could use such a horrendous and evil people like the Babylonians to be a punishing rod for God's chosen people. Now, step back with me to the end of 2019. What if we were to be in Habakkuk's sandals for a moment? And we were to ask God about the coming year 2020 and say, God, what are you going to be doing in 2020? We would definitely not be prepared for the answer that we know we would receive now here at the end of March, the beginning of April. But 
we wonder, God, what are you doing in our world today? Who could have predicted that we would be in the situation that we are in now? If you were to do a brief snapshot of our globe, just a look around, watch, as he told the prophet Habakkuk. Here's what you'd see going on in our world. We know right now, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but billions of people around the world are locked down because of social distancing. Entire nations are shut in. Thousands of people infected with a mysterious virus. Thousands have died. Thousands more will die. Financial markets are plummeting all across the globe. People are out of work. Kids are in homeschooling. Churches are closed. Sports are canceled. And a tiny virus has shut down this world into a grinding halt. That's one thing going on in our world. But did you know what else is happening? Australia, listen to this, recently put out the last of the wildfires which blazed across its continent for 240 straight days. It's just ended. In 2019, that was the worst drought in that nation's history and it led to this terrible blaze. As the smoke clears, the wildfires on that continent killed at least 33 people and destroyed more than 3,000 homes and 18 million acres stand charred today. Not to mention the untold numbers of wildlife that have been displaced from this continent that's been on fire. And then if you were to go to Africa, what is going on there in that continent? Well, right now, according to BBC News, hundreds of billions of locusts are swarming through East Africa and, and now into Asia. In fact, they say that this is the worst locust invasion in a quarter of a century. It's eating crops. It's putting uh, the whole land there into a famine. Now, as you watch what's going on in our world today, I can't help but be reminded of what Jesus predicted would be the world conditions just prior to His return, during that tribulation period, that seven-year time of testing where God is pouring out His wrath, listen to what Jesus said about the world, how it would be just before His return. Matthew 24, starting in verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, I know what some may say. They say, preacher, well, we've always had wars, and we've always had famines, and we've always had plagues. Yes, we have down through the ages, and those are well documented. But friend, look at how they are converging now. Jesus referred to the signs of the times as birth pains growing in frequency and intensity as we go closer to uh, the end times, setting up the what I believe the rapture of the church and the return of Christ. And I think that all these natural disasters converging at one time are a preview, just a snapshot of the terrible wrath that God is one day going to bring upon an unbelieving world. And what a reminder it is to us as we watch that we see that life is fragile and that God is ultimately preparing this world for the curtain to rise on the final act of the divine drama and for the return of Christ to begin. And with all the chaos and with all the obvious panic that we see in the masses, 
I can now begin to realize and see as people go to a grocery store and almost kill each other for a roll of toilet paper or a loaf of bread, I can understand now with all the chaos and all the panic that we see how easy it would be for an Antichrist figure to step forward and say, I can solve your problems. I can end this. I can remedy your economy and so on. For a little exchange of your freedom. We can see how that end time picture is being set up. But when you look at this, friend, when you understand Bible prophecy, what you need to know is that things aren't falling apart. Praise God, they're falling into place. There is no reason for the child of God to worry or panic or doubt. Everything is right on schedule. God told Habakkuk, you watch and see what I'm about to do here on this world. And Jesus has told His people, watch. Therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour that the Son of Man uh, will return. He's coming back soon. It could be night or noon. I'm washing His blood, packed up and ready. Goodbye, oh world, goodbye. Are you ready? Are you watching? And then we see number two. Wait. Wait because God's works are unfinished. Notice what the text says here. Chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself over the tower and look out to see what He will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that He may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. For if it seems slow, here it is, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So Habakkuk here, like a sentinel standing on a watchtower, is there to detect the first signs of an approaching army. And Habakkuk has decided to wait for God's prediction to come true. And notice that God didn't give His prophet any definite timetable, any definite timestamp of when this invasion was coming upon His people. And God is not working on our schedule either. His delays are not His denials. He's on time every time. And in the meantime, while you're waiting, He's building faith within your heart. Now, in our, in our current situation... We don't really know how long this pandemic will last. Any more than we don't know the day or the hour that Jesus might return for His church. But what we do know is that while we wait, God is working for good. God is behind the scenes and He's moving all the scenes that He's behind. When you look at waiting, how difficult waiting is when we're going through that season. But God has used it time and time again throughout the Scriptures. Think about Joseph. When Joseph was in jail, uh, in that Egyptian prison for two years, uh, he had given him a prophecy, given him a dream that he would be standing before his, his brothers and they would bow down to him, a dream that he would be a ruler, and yet he was rotting away in an Egyptian prison. And yet God, while he was in that prison, was working on his behalf giving Pharaoh in his bedchamber nightmares and dreams that only one man in the world could interpret, and that was the man Joseph. And just at the right time, uh, when God's time was ready, Joseph was released so that he could interpret the dreams. He had to wait on God because God's work 
wasn't finished. Uh, you think about little Hannah. Uh, one thing that she wanted more than anything was to hold a child in her arms. As uh, she begged God, as uh, she prayed, as uh, she went to the priest and, and sought a way, uh, how could that mother's need, that mother's desire to hold a baby be fulfilled? And she had to wait. But then the day came and the prayer was answered and she held a giggling little baby boy in her hands. And then you think about David. Uh, he'd been anointed uh, by the prophet uh, that he would be king. He had a promise from God knowing that he would one day sit upon a throne. But David found himself waiting on God in a cave. Uh, waiting for God to fulfill His promise. And then you think about the disciples. Oh, you talk about excruciating waiting period. You think it's hard to wait on this thing to pass. You think about being one of uh, Jesus' disciples during that time. From a Friday afternoon until Sunday morning, they were waiting on the Word of the Lord. They were waiting on Jesus' promise to be fulfilled. That He would uh, come from the tomb. He said, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I pick it back up again upon my own authority. And so we're called to wait. We're called to watch. Now waiting on God doesn't mean idleness. In fact, we can use that acrostic wait, W-A-I-T, to be productive. Let's use that, W-A-I-T. What can we do with that? Well, W, we can work. While we're waiting, we can serve God in the meantime. We don't just sit and twiddle our thumbs and, and do nothing. We can also A, act. We can be obedient in what we know to do. The things that we know God has asked us to do, we go ahead and do them and be obedient. We can I, invite, that is we can allow God to work in our heart, building faith and building trust. Changing us from our old impatient self more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So we can work, we can act, we can invite, and then we can tea, we can trust. We can trust that God's timing is better than we think it is. Now, let me tell you, one way that God is working through this crisis is how He is refining the church and calling people to Jesus for salvation. Uh, tragedies and Calamities have a way of doing that. They get our attention and help us to focus on eternity. They get our eyes off the temporal things and show us that the things we've been putting our hope and trust in aren't very secure. So for every negative that we hear about going on in our world, listen, there's a positive and God is using this situation to see that Jesus is glorified and the church is sanctified. Listen to this. Now, I don't watch CNN much because I just can't stand the reporting. Like President Trump says, it's fake news. But CNN, listen to this. They're not on God's side necessarily. They're not on there quoting the Bible and praying for the revival of the nation. But CNN reported the story of a Rome, Georgia man named Clay Bentley. This man was admitted to the hospital with a severe case of double pneumonia. But Bentley's case worsened when doctors tested him positive for COVID-19. Now we know that associated with this virus, it attacks the lung and the breathing system. And people who have a compromised immune system, they say, are way many more times likely to die. Well, this happened to Clay Bentley. He was near death. He was gasping for every breath. But Clay Bentley belonged to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, hard-praying church. And when the word got out that Clay was sick, 
a prayer vigil was sent out through his church membership to pray for his miraculous healing. And listen to this. This is, to, this is from the article. To the amazement of doctors, Clay pulled through. He even, listen to this, received a phone call from Vice President Mike Pence to encourage him and pray with him through the ordeal. Now, is God getting glory through this or not? Now, when reporters asked Clay and his wife, how did they get through? This is what this simple man said on national television to millions of people watching. He said, quote, it's been a hard road. But I'm here to tell you that when you've got the Word of God to stand on and the people of God praying for you, no weapon formed against you can prosper. I think he said it better than that theologian that I quoted a little bit earlier at the beginning of the sermon. Think about it. Millions of people across the country heard the testimony on television and the internet. And yet, how did this amazing thing happen? It happened because of the crisis. And I know that since the crisis has started, even our little church, little Liberty Baptist Church over here on the hill, on 875 Montevista Road, Carolina, North Carolina, we have been able to reach hundreds and hundreds of people through this very use of technology right here. When people are shut up and they're out of work and they're out of school and they got nothing else to do, well, they'll turn in, they'll tune in, and they'll listen to Answers from the Word of God. So God is using adversity for advancement. He's using pain for gain. So we need to wait because God's works are unfinished. And then we need to watch because God's ways are unfathomable. And then number three, I want you to see this tonight. We need to witness because God's Word is unfailing. Witness because God's Word is unfailing. Now, Habakkuk was no pushover in the pulpit. Here's a classic hellfire and brimstone preacher, and he's called to herald God's impending judgment, not only toward his own people, but also he's to preach judgment to the Babylonians. And for much of chapter 2 here, Habakkuk goes on a litany listing the crimes of the Babylonians to which God was going to hold them accountable. And so what the prophet does here in this section is he announces a series of five woes against this wicked nation. And so notice here, after God uses Babylon to discipline Israel, God promises to come back and balance the scales of justice and bring judgment now on Babylon. And here's how and why he was going to punish them. Notice verses 5 and 6 in chapter 2. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is wide as shale. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all peoples. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles and say, here's the first woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself up with pledges. The first thing that God was going to judge the Babylonians for was their theft taking things that weren't their own. Then the prophet says God's going to judge them, verse 9, for their greed. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest high, to be safer from the reach of harm. 
So their theft, their greed. Then God says He's going to judge them, verse 12, because of their violence. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city with iniquity. Then in verse 15, drop down and you'll see that God said He was going to judge them because of their drunkenness. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And then lastly in verse 19, God said He was going to judge the Babylonians for their idolatry. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, and do a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. And so what's interesting and also indicting about this list as you read it and you go down the crimes of Babylon, you, you know, our nation is described very plainly and very detailed in that list. We're guilty of the very same things. Now notice this, that Babylon had gotten away for their crimes for a long time. But God says, I am going to bring justice to this whole thing, Habakkuk. You don't worry about it. I've got it covered. All you do is witness to them. You tell them what's coming their way and why it's coming their way. And Habakkuk may not have lived to have seen it, but his job was to warn the people of God's wrath that it was just as sure as the rising of the sun. And of course we know from the Bible, Daniel chapter 5, that indeed Babylon did get the judgment that was coming to them because in that chapter uh, we read about Belshazzar's drunken feast. You remember that in Daniel chapter 5? And they bring Daniel out because God's hand appears there in the, in the drunken party there and he writes a message on the wall and nobody can understand it. Uh, but the Bible says that when the king saw it, that one knee smote against another and his joints were loosed. Uh, he was scared stiff. Uh, they, God put a quiver in his liver and they brought Daniel out and said, Daniel, what's this message on the wall? And it said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Waited, waited, numbered, and wanted. And it was a judgment against Babylon that very night. And according to the historians, on October the 12th of 539 B.C., Babylon totally collapsed when Darius the Mede came into the city and he infiltrated that great city with high walls and with great parapets. And he took the city while they parted and not a single shot was fired. And what we see here is that just as Habakkuk warned the people of his generation that time was running out, and there was a need to repent. So too, that's our description. We are to be faithful witnesses telling our lost world, hey, the time to come to Jesus isn't tomorrow. Uh, it isn't when you're old and decrepit in your bed. Uh, it isn't uh, or when you feel like it. The time to come to Jesus is now. Because as you live through a crisis, it makes mortality and death that much more a reality. And we see the urgent need of the gospel like never before. I was reading earlier on this week a book by Pastor Erwin Lutzer. And in that book he talks about a story of how he met a man who turned to Christ after he had survived an earthquake. And the man told Pastor Lutzer that when the ground under his feet began to break up, he realized that everything that he had built his life upon was like sinking sand. And he needed to put his hope and trust in something that was going to last beyond this world. But in that same book, listen to this quote that Pastor Lucer gives about natural disasters and how God uses them. Listen to this. 
He said natural disasters might drive people away from God. But for others, it has the opposite effect, driving them into the arms of Jesus. The destruction of nature has helped them distinguish the temporary from the permanent. Disasters and disease remind the living that tomorrow is uncertain. And so we must prepare for eternity today. And when disasters come, he said, God is not on trial. Listen to this. We are. Earthquakes, tsunamis, and plagues can be the voice of God shouting to an unrepentant planet. Wow. So what did God tell Habakkuk to do when he didn't know what to do? He said, first thing I want you to do is watch. And he said, I want you to wait. And then thirdly, he said, I want you to witness. Tell the people what I've told you. And then fourth, the last thing that Habakkuk did. This may be the thing that makes the least sense to the unbelieving world. But God told the prophet, worship. Worship. Because God's worth is unfading. And we get this from the last few verses in chapter 3. Look at this, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yields no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, here it is, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on my high places. So think about this. Notice the journey that Habakkuk has gone on. At the beginning of the book, he's wrestling with God. And now at the end of the book, he's worshiping God. He decided somewhere in that journey that he was going to take his doubts and turn them into shouts, that he was going to make the choice to rejoice. And what he does in all of chapter 3, if you have time to look at it, go back and do it. But he reviews the faithfulness of God. And as he reviews God's faithfulness down through the centuries, it renews his faith in a sovereign God who's in control of the nations. And so, here's what Habakkuk realized. Every time God allowed another nation to come against his people... He did something good for His people through that. So think about this. When Egypt came and enslaved Israel, what did God do? God raised up Moses, the deliverer, to bring His people out of bondage. And then He brought them to the mountain and He gave them His law and He gave them His covenant. When the Midianites came along to overrun God's people, He raised up a general named Gideon, and he used Gideon to defeat the mighty Midianites when they didn't even have any weapons. All they had was a few torches and a few pots. And then when the Philistines came to beat down the doors of Israel, they had a giant out on the field and said, Who do you bring to fight us? And God raised up a little shepherd boy with nothing but five smooth stones and a slingshot. And I believe that God guided that stone right to the forehead of the giant. And what you see here is that what Habakkuk realized, if God has been faithful to keep His promises through all of that, every time a nation came against us, God was there and God brought us through, then God might as well be faithful again and He's going to bring us through whatever this is going to mean for the Babylonians coming against us. Uh, somebody has joked, they've said that every time somebody tries to wipe the Israelites off the face of the map, that Israel ends up getting a new holiday. <laughs> and that's true when you think about it. 
Uh, they got Passover when they were in Egyptian bondage. Uh, they got Purim uh, from the book of Esther when Mordecai tried to hang them all. Uh, they got Hanukkah during the intertestamental period. And then in 1948, uh, they got their own sovereign nation uh, after Hitler tried to burn them all in the ovens of the Holocaust. But what you see here is that Habakkuk, at the end of the book, he has walked away with a bigger view of God than what he had in the beginning. And if God had been faithful to deliver His people time and time again in the past, then He was going to make a way once again for His people. And maybe that's what we need to realize through this whole thing is, hey, maybe our view of God has been really small before this crisis. And Habakkuk is challenging us tonight. Hey, go back in your memory bank. Think about the times you were on the edge. Think about the times you didn't know where your help was going to come from. How there was going to be enough to make it through the end of the month. Or how you were going to get your healing. And think about the faithfulness of God through all of that. And how He brought you through time and time again. And He never let you down. And you can begin to do what Habakkuk did. He started to worship God. He said, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation because I know something that the rest of the world doesn't know that my God is on the throne and my God's faithful and not one blade of grass will move without His knowledge and not one nation will be allowed to come against us unless they get the okay from God. And my worst enemy, the devil, he can't do anything against me until God gives him permission to do so. So everything that is passed on to me has first passed through the hands of God. And if it's gone through God's hands, then that means He's going to use it for good in some way. Friend, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about Easter. We're getting close to Easter. And I was thinking about all the disciples went through leading up to Jesus' resurrection. And you know, the same routine that Habakkuk went through is the same routine that the disciples had to go through. They had to watch. Jesus said, look, I'm about to go into Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the Romans and they're going to crucify me. You just watch what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be killed. And then they had to wait. Oh, that agonizing wait from Friday to Sunday. They had to wait those three days. Oh, but they knew that Sunday was coming. They had to go through the darkness. And then they had to witness. Oh, did they witness some things because God's work wasn't done. They saw the empty tomb. They talked to the angels there. Said, why are you searching for the dead? Uh, why are you searching for the living among the dead? He is not here. Uh, they talked with Him along the walk down Emmaus Road. Uh, they touched His nail prints in His side. And when they got through it, oh boy, did they worship. Yes, in the upper room, Thomas the doubter, Thomas the Habakkuk, the question man, the man who said, I don't get this. I won't believe until I touch his wounds. Oh, when he laid his hands on him, he said, my Lord and my God. Listen, friend, the worst tragedy in the world is the death of God's Son. Worst tragedy that's ever happened on this planet it hasn't been a hurricane or an earthquake or a plague or a pandemic. It was the murder of God's sinless Son. And yet out of that tragedy, here's what I see. God brings ultimate triumph. And if God can take unspeakable evil like that 
and use it for His glory and use it for our good, then I have no doubt in my mind that God can do the same thing in our situation. And so we have the choice to rejoice. And I know that when we get through it all, we'll be able to look back and see God's hand over it all. We'll come through it and our faith will be stronger. Our view of God will be bigger. Our worship when we gather in the house of God again will be sweeter like it's never been before. And so we might as well just make the choice to worship Him now because you know He's good. All He can do is things that are good. Worship Him for who He is. Worship Him for what He's done. And yes, worship Him for what He's going to do, church, because He is a great God. Let me finish with this. Martin Reichert, not a household name. But his example gives us great courage today. Reichert was a pastor in the German town of Eilenburg. And most of his ministry took place during a dark time in history known as the Thirty Years' War. It was a war that raised across Europe from 1618 to 1648. And during that conflict, massive armies would march across the land. They would pillage shops and farms. They would leave nothing but ruin and desolation behind. And farming activities were so interrupted during that war that famine spread throughout the area there in Germany where Reichert lived. And on top of that, there wasn't enough food, but on top of that, a bubonic plague broke out. And it took the lives of 8,000 people in the town of Eilenburg. And Martin Reichert was in the middle of it all. And things got so bad during that outbreak of plague, there were three pastors in the city, Martin Reichert and two others. The two other pastors got the plague and died. And he was the only preacher left in that city. He said that all day he went from bed to bed, nursing the sick and comforting the dying. In fact, according to historians, he did 4,800 funerals during the years of that plague. Sometimes he did funerals for 50 and 100 bodies at a time that were in a mass grave. Martin even buried his wife during that terrible scourge. A year after the 30 years Conflict ended in 1649. This man died of exhaustion. And you can understand why. He literally ministered himself to death. And most of his work would have gone unnoticed if it wasn't for a single hymn that he penned. We don't sing it much these days. But the hymn is called, Now Thank We All Our God. Here's the words. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done, in whom His world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. And what I want to finish with is this. If Habakkuk could praise God knowing that judgment was coming against his nation, if Martin Reichert could praise God in the middle of a plague, and friend, we as the children of God who have been given so much more can do the very same thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this evening. We thank You for this time that we've had. We pray, Lord, that the message would challenge us, 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow through this, that we would learn to watch, that we would learn to wait, that we would be better witnesses, and that, Lord, we would be better worshipers. We pray for that lost person out there who's listening to this message, who doesn't know you as Savior. God, I pray that they would see their peril, that they would also see the great salvation of Jesus Christ, and that they would turn to Him, repent of their sin, and trust in only Him. We thank you, and we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.